Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is UXK. 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 I'm your host, Lee Allen Arredondo. Today, we're talking about how to create executive or stakeholder alignment using alignment personas with Tamara Adlin. Tamara is an experienced strategy consultant, and she's an expert on personas. She co-wrote the original book on creating personas back in 2006. And since that time, data-driven personas have become common deliverables in the UX world. As useful as they can be for understanding our customers' goals and motivations, Creating them and getting buy-in and getting them used in any organization can be problematic. In the past decade, Tamara's evolved her own approach to personas to a process that's more about creating alignment. And she's written a new book about it, which you can read online for free, by the way. She's giving us an overview today of what they are, how and why she creates them, and how you can create them too. We also talk a little bit about how to work around the political issues that can come up in creating personas and how to overcome resistance to this process. Thanks, Tamara, for joining me on UX Cake. I have been really looking forward to this. My pleasure. I'm excited too. Just some background on personas and your involvement with personas. Over 10 years ago, you wrote a book about personas. And since then, the use of personas in UX has become pretty common, but it's also changed a lot. And your approach using personas has changed as well. So now you've written a book on this approach that you call alignment personas. And I wanted to kind of start with getting that nutshell version of how this changed for you and what those alignment personas are. Absolutely. So I actually started thinking about personas right when Alan Cooper's book came out in 1999, which is the inmates are running the asylum book and got fascinated by it and did a series of workshops. And very early, the reason the persona lifecycle book was born was because there wasn't a lot of information on actually how do you create personas and then actually how do you use them other than instructions like find patterns in your data and create personas. So we really created the persona lifecycle around that pragmatic necessity for UX practitioners to know how to do this. And along the way, we also found out a lot about why persona efforts were failing. I mean, everybody in our industry agreed to some extent, that having a focus of who you're designing for and having that be a very specific focus is extraordinarily helpful for all sorts of reasons. So why were so many persona efforts failing? And I think they still are. And so I think people have a bit of a bad taste about personas, even though I think a lot of us still understand the fundamental reasons why personas should be interesting. And I have come, you know, in the Persona Lifecycle book, we're all about using data to create personas. But in real life, in my consulting work, I found that I was never doing that. Instead, I was doing something different, which was to use a persona creation methodology that was originally titled ad hoc personas, or that was it fit under the umbrella of ad hoc personas. And I was doing this with senior people on the team. And by creating these quick or ad hoc or alignment personas very early, we sort of got all of the assumptions of the executive team out on the table. What I really found out, long story short, is that nothing, no artifact can displace hidden assumptions that 
key stakeholders have. And I decided that the only assumptions that can really hurt your product are the ones you don't know about. So I don't think assumptions are a bad thing. I think people know a lot about the product that they're trying to build and why they're trying to build them. And if you want to get rid of assumptions and replace them with data, first thing you have to know is what those assumptions are. So I have these books that are wonderful and have a lot of information about thinking about creating personas and then actually using them and what to do. But that middle section, that conception and gestation on how to create personas, I never use the process that's in that book. And so I wanted to share that and share the reasons why, which were more about people and the psychology of teams than they are about anything else, even data. So you're talking about how the process is different, but I'm curious if you have found other advantages of this approach, this alignment persona approach, where you're getting those assumptions out, are they more effective? Yeah, I find they're incredibly more effective because I find a lot of data-driven persona approaches fail for various reasons. The reason they're effective is because if you've got key stakeholders or an executive team, and most of the time I work with a C-level team as high up as I can possibly get, If they are in the room, when you create these personas, they discover for themselves through this process that their assumptions don't match up with their teammates' assumptions, with their colleagues' assumptions. And when you create these alignment personas together and everybody agrees on them, at least you have alignment. And then when you prioritize them, then you have focus. So alignment and focus are so powerful and such a relief to most key stakeholder teams that they're willing to use the names of the personas and keep them alive because they're better than the alternative. And if you have key stakeholders or C-level people using the names of the personas, then the personas stick around. Yeah. And so part of this, what I'm understanding is that, is it because the stakeholders are involved in creating these personas that they are more apt to use them? I absolutely think so. And also because then the resulting personas embody things that are important to this key stakeholder. So just to contextualize this, every company was started for a reason. Some person had some idea for some solution that would meet the needs of some interesting set of consumers in some unique way, right? I mean, that's how companies start. Oh, I think we should let people share cars or whatever. And when people conceptualize a company or a way to apply technology to a problem, they do that for a reason. They go through this huge process of selling this whole idea to investors, to people that they want to have join their team. We call those things assumptions and say they're dangerous, but I don't believe that's the case. I believe they're the DNA of the company. And so what the alignment persona process does is it brings that DNA out into light. It makes very clear what has shifted since the company started and what they're still trying to do. What are we trying to create for which people to solve which problems? So then after you've created these alignment personas, I know one of the ways that I've worked with these sort of proto personas or preliminary personas in the past is then we go out and do the research with actual users or customers to validate or find the gaps in our understanding. Is that something that you're talking about as well with alignment personas? Yeah. So proto-personas, by the way, is a methodology. And that's great. It's another way to create. As far as I understand it, it's a methodology that I have looked up out there. I have to do more research on exactly what that process is. Alignment personas is as much a process as it is an outcome. But your question was, do you then go out and collect data? Here's my answer to that. 
I always say that's what we're going to do because I say before you collect data in, in seventh grade in science, we learned before you do any research, you should create a hypothesis. And then you test that hypothesis with your research or with your experiments. Alignment personas or any early stage personas are hypotheses. And then you can be targeted in your data collection and analysis approach. I'm not saying that it should bias your data collection, but you know what questions you want to go out there and answer. Do these people really exist? Do they have the wants and needs that we think they do? The reality is we almost never do that in the projects that I work on. And the reasons we never get to that stage is because the alignment personas we create are so fundamental and so obvious in so many ways that the team feels like there's a lot of goodness they can get out of them without even going to validate them. Or the data that they need to collect is stuff like, well, what does this person's job really consist of? Where does their responsibility start and where does it end? Things like that, as opposed to giant research to identify whether or not this is a problem that people have. But do you find that then those assumptions are taking the place of true understanding of actual pain points and motivations? Well, let me give you an example. So very early on with Zillow, I did a persona project with them. And I'm not giving away anything that's a big secret or anything. This was back in 2005. But one of the things we did was create personas around house buyers and house sellers. And that's a pretty obvious thing. And there were multiple personas in there. But one of the insights that we sort of talked about is, in some ways, when you buy a house you're always doing it for the first time, right? Something major has changed. Even if you've bought a house before, maybe you have kids now and you care about school districts or maybe your income has changed radically or maybe you're moving to a different city. So that kind of insight was incredibly helpful way back then in 2005 in making some decisions about what the product was then. That was not something that anybody felt we needed to do research on at that moment. We felt like there was some goodness and they have since done a huge amount of research and there's a huge amount of data applied to whoever their personas are now that I don't know. But an insight like that was sort of a great aha moment that was helpful in thinking about what's something unique we could do to help understand that and to approach this as something where we never treat people as completely expert in anything because we know that their needs and concerns and wants are always changing. We didn't know exactly what those were, but it wasn't too hard to guess what major life changes could be between buying one house and buying a next house. So it's that level of insights that often come out of these exercises. And they're often so basic. I think we all think that companies are desperately missing a bunch of details. In my experience, companies aren't missing details. They're missing the basics. The, hey, <laughs> you know, these people are about to spend the most money that they're ever going to spend in their lives and it's freaking them out and they haven't done it for a while if they've done it ever. That's the level of insight that's missing in most companies. Not that they tend to have had a mortgage before that they researched with seven different mortgage brokers before deciding on one and refinancing twice. Mm. With these types of persona creations, are you finding that the ways that the alignment personas are used is different from these heavy data-backed traditional personas? Well, I honestly don't know a lot about how big traditional personas are being used these days because I really haven't done a lot of them. What I can tell you is that people call me to do consulting as a persona person, right? And they call me and say, well, we're considering a bunch of different agencies to help us create these personas. So we want to scope in all this research and et cetera, et cetera. And I say to them, well, let's talk for a few minutes because my approach is very different 
The interesting thing is that when I talk about the kinds of problems that the alignment persona process solves, they get very excited and say, that's the problem I'm trying to solve. It's not a desperate need for more data. They're saying, I'm going to go get data because my big problem is I can't get the executive team focused or aligned. So the problem of an unfocused, unaligned executive decision-making team, whatever level that is, is much bigger than the problem of not using data. That's my opinion. I mean, as you're talking about this, I wonder if a lot of the effectiveness of that, though, may have a lot to do with the person who is driving this process. And I think if you're going to be basing it on assumptions of key stakeholders in order to get people to be really honest and aligned. That's not an easy thing to do in my experience. And it takes a lot of experience as a facilitator to do that. Though the thing that comes to mind is, well, is this something that your average senior UX designer could do? What you just said is very spot on. And I don't think any junior UX person should ever try to do this with anybody outside their own little team, not necessarily little team, but own team. They shouldn't climb too far up the management chain to do this because they'll get slaughtered politically. So the alignment persona creation process is a political process and it is fraught with danger. When you start messing around, uncovering the assembly code of an organization, you have to be very careful. Having said that, If you are a senior UX person and you are coming in, let's say, to help scope something as part of an agency, so an outside expert, you can do this. If you are somebody who is a senior UX person and you are new to an organization, you can do this. If you are a card-carrying big dog at the table as an executive, you can do this. The politics of it can be difficult. Now, the practical question of can you actually get them to tell you what their assumptions are? I absolutely think you can. So what I'm really proud of about this process is that each and every step is easy. It's very easy. There's a whole bunch of sticky notes like every great process in UX. And there's nothing that's, let's all talk about our assumptions. There's nothing that's scary like that. It's just a series of steps each one of which is deceptively simple. And the fact that they're all participating in writing on sticky notes, grouping sticky notes, that is an equalizer. So the only tricky thing is getting them all to agree to do it and being very careful because there is some guidance that experience allows me to bring into the process that's very tricky to do from within an organization. So basically, this is fraught with danger if you already work at a place and you're trying to do it for that place. If you're coming in from the outside, it's not as problematic. So what are some specific ways that you because you do experience strategy. I mean, you do more than just creating personas. This is often the maybe an initial step to a larger experience strategy. Are there ways that you incorporate these personas into your experience strategy down the line? Absolutely. I know that experience strategy is a whole practice at this point and that there's types of documents and everything that people use. The truth is that what I do looks a lot more like coaching than it does like creating here is your experience strategy, which may or may not be different from other people. I honestly don't know. So what I do is often I work with very early stage startups, which is a unique thing to do. There's already a team, a very small team typically, and all of them are senior by definition because there's only five of them. And there's some idea for a product. And the challenge that they're facing now, having gotten some amount of money to get started, is they've made this thing attractive to people who will give them money. Now, how do they make it make sense 
to people who are actually going to use it or make a decision to purchase it. So the way I use personas with that is that the very first thing I do is sort of create alignment personas around who are we trying to sell to and what do they want and need? And by the way, the fundamental elements of a persona in my book are statements that start with, I want or I need. And if we have those personas and we have business goals, which is something we haven't talked about yet, which is another real key to the success of all this, and we can prioritize the personas based on the business goals, then, we ha- then we're getting somewhere. If we need to increase online subscriptions by 20% in the first quarter, and we know the persona that's going to get us there is Bobby Bus Rider, then we can start to say, well, how do we get Bobby Bus Rider who has these wants and needs to sign up for this subscription? And that's how we can start to translate this sort of big idea into an experience that will make sense Mm -hmm. and work. Well, okay. So you mentioned business objectives. That seems like also part of the first steps of any kind of UX strategy process. In my experience, that's one of the first questions. But you're alluding to it maybe not being as simple as simply asking, what are your business objectives? That's right. So the biggest UX challenge I believe in the world today is the lack of clear, measurable business goals. There is nothing that you can do to make a project succeed if you... I mean, obviously, there are projects succeed that without that. But the biggest predictor of success will be if you have clear, measurable business goals. I mean, as UX professionals, we can build anything for anyone. We just have to know what it is we're building and why and for who. So business goals can't be increased revenue and decreased costs. Again, I'm telling you about my experience as a consultant. Every single time I start talking to someone about a contract, I tell them the first step is that we're going to articulate your business goals. It's not my job to write them, but we're going to articulate them. And every time without fail, they say, well, we don't need to include that in the scope of work because we've already got those. Exactly. (laughs) And they never, ever do. I am telling you, there is no company that could sit down right now, nowhere, and write down its top five business objectives for this quarter in a way that I'd be satisfied. And the way that I'd be satisfied is it's a mad libs. It starts out with, we need to increase or decrease some metric by some number in some amount of time. And you need numbers for all of those things. But no one has them. And the reason no one has them is because people set these goals at the beginning of the year. And every single time more than two executives get together in a room for more than 15 minutes, something shifts. And no one else is there to see it. And no one writes it down. And that's fine and a reality that cannot be changed. What can be changed is that we can put markers in the ground that say, these are the business objectives that you signed off on on the beginning of this project. This is how we'll know if this project succeeded, that we increased or decreased this key metric by this number in this amount of time. Have you seen this? You say you primarily are working with early stage startups, but have you seen this happening or this kind of thing happening in further stage startups or even mid-sized companies or even established companies? Oh, it's way worse. Are you kidding me? It's way worse. Partially because it's more dangerous to identify business goals in a in mid-size or large company because the chances that someone that's higher up than you will think that you're wrong are extremely high. So fear is a big part of this. Uh, well, we have the KPI metrics for the Q4 of the OP1 project. I'm like, okay, send them on over. Well, where, where are those, uh, Bev? Did we have those in the... Uh, You had those last in our uh, deck for the, you know, it's absurd. They don't have them. And it's because it's easier not to know than to make a guess and be wrong. But nobody can admit 
that they don't know what they are because that's also career suicide. So just being high up on a chain does not make you smarter than anybody else. And it does not make you magically able to come up with business goals. People don't know what the business goals are. No one does, but no one is safe admitting it. That's my philosophy every time I go into a company. Nobody knows what your goals are and nobody will admit it. And if you start out projects that way, it's going to help you a lot as a UX practitioner. That comes back to your earlier point that this is much easier to do as an outsider. That's very tricky ground for inside, especially for UX, unless you are at that level where you already have that relationship with those executives. So I've had success working with other folks in this situation is maybe setting your sights a little bit further down. Basically, Taking this approach, not necessarily with the executives, but with whoever the highest level that you have a really good relationship with. And then going from there, because those people, especially if they're on the business side, can often help move this up the chain. Absolutely. You do not go over anybody's head. If you're inside... Okay, so here's the other glorious thing about business goals. The other glorious thing, other than them not existing, is that it's never inappropriate to ask for them ever, right? Nobody can ever say none of your beeswax or that you're acting inappropriately in your job. So my advice for people that are inside an organization is that they write up what they think the business goals are and they send them to the person directly above them saying, I'm sure I'm off. You show your belly right? I'm sure I'm off. But could you tell me if I'm like, let's say I work inside an organization. Let's say I decide to think I think Tamara's great and I'm going to try to do this. Well, I might write down that we need to decrease time on calls at the call center by 20% with no decrease in customer satisfaction within six months of launching our new product, right? That's a great business goal. So the question I would ask my boss is, is 20% in the ballpark or should it be 150% or should it be 2%? You don't care about 20 versus 25 because nobody's going to care about 20 versus 25. What you care about is 20 versus 150 or 20 versus 2. So you don't have to push for absolutely nailed down numbers. What you're looking for in those numbers are the ballpark. So there is a compromise here. You absolutely need business goals and they don't need to be dead on bullseye business goals. But you need to know the vicinity wherein people will say, you guys were successful, (laughs) right? And it's not a guarantee that you'll be able to hit those goals either, but you should be able to track the work that you've done towards those goals. Mm -hmm. And in this case, you're talking about using those business goals as your own metrics for success. Sure. And also to help prioritize, because once you have the business goals, there might be four or five or 10 of them. The question then is, The way this works best with alignment personas, the last step in the alignment persona process after you've created these sort of candidates or even bulk them out into finished personas, which is not terribly difficult, then you do a prioritization process with the executive team, which says, here are the business goals you told me, executive team. And I'm using executive team as an umbrella term for anybody above you. Here are the business goals you said. Now, which of these personas do we have to make? If we don't make them ridiculously happy, we've failed right? So let's say that in my example with a call center and the time in the call center of a call, maybe we have a persona who's a call center manager, and maybe we have somebody who's a frontline call center supervisor. And then we have maybe a call center rep, an actual person who's always on the phone. Those are likely personas for any call center software. If we don't make the person directly on the phone, frontline person, ridiculously happy, we are going to fail. If we don't give them all the tools they need to satisfy someone's problem 20% quicker than they could before, 
we'll fail. And that's more true than if we make the supervisor ridiculously happy with our software. Because the supervisor simply isn't impacting the metrics that much. The supervisor is involved with calls that take longer automatically. So the magic comes when you can say, based on our business goals, these are the relative priorities of our personas. So then you can say, based on this business goal, the reason I'm spending so much time on Philip Phone is because if we don't make him ridiculously happy, we fail. There's tons of sexy features I could do for Molly Manager. And they're super interesting and fun and big data and analysis and dabba dabba dabba. But the point is, if we don't nail it for Philip, we're never going to hit this. And that's where suddenly you build this bridge between what you're physically doing every day and business objectives that if they shift, you'll at least have a chance of knowing about it. Great. Because this is coming back around to that original question that I had, which was, how are these alignment personas being used within the experience strategy? And I think that was the answer right there, which is that that last piece of prioritization is going to help drive the experience strategy, meaning these are the priorities of our users. And so this is why we're going to do these things in this priority. So that's a really critical piece. That's awesome. That is a critical piece. And I think that an experience strategy has to line up with a business strategy, which is expressed in business goals. I think an experience strategy can be expressed in the language of personas because part of what you're doing is translating all of the nitty gritty of the work that we do as UX people into something that other people can understand. We are focusing on the experience of Philip phone. Here are the reasons why. And they track directly into the language that you understand. Boss, grand boss, great grand boss, Mm -hmm. right? But now that we understand who Philip phone is versus Molly manager or whoever I called that person, we know who that person is. So let's talk about what we're really going to try to address strategically. Where are the core problems we found with Philip's experience. They may not be where you think they are. It's not that it actually turns out that they're spending 25% of the time that is attributed to a single call with coding that call at the end. So it has nothing to do with looking up the information faster. It just has to do with this logistical issue. So first of all, let's fix that metric, which is an experience strategy thing to do. And then let's look at the core issues and whether that changes the picture. More than anything else, we are translators between business users and technology, which means that we have to use a language, simplified language that people can understand. And I find the language of alignment personas perfect for that. Mm. I want to make sure that we get to the last part, the mini mentoring brainstorm, which is where I take a question or an issue that comes from a UX pro. And I'll tell you what that is. And then uh, you can give us some of your advice on how that person might solve that issue. So this one, I'm actually taking from your site. I found this on, I forget what page of your site, but someone says, I'm currently, this was, I think this person was actually replying to one of your, a video of a talk that you gave. And he or she says, I'm currently trying to figure out how to provide a persona template to the BA slash PM group at my company per boss, director of UX request. I'm struggling with reconciling, giving them the power to create personas without facilitating their creation. This video really helped me understand that ad hoc personas, which is what you used to call alignment personas, that ad hoc personas are really what need to be created with these product groups instead of giving them the template to do their own. 
now to convince my boss. So what I wanted to get your input on is that last part to convince her boss or his boss. If someone's encountering resistance to this process, uh, maybe they are doing it at the right level of where they're at, but maybe the resistance is coming because of the time it requires from stakeholders, or maybe because those stakeholders aren't convinced that these alignment personas are valid. What would be your advice there? Well, First of all, let me tell you that very early on, you said that it was a new book. It's actually, it is a book, but it's on a website and it's free and it's always going to be free. So the entire process is, I just want to help people start to use it and talk about it. So the entire process end to end is on the website now, which it wasn't before. So one of the things I would tell that person is maybe to see if they can get the boss to be willing to try out this process, even a quick version of this process where you start out with articulating business goals, you list words for users, you describe users on yellow sticky notes, you identify I want, I need statements on pink sticky notes and arrange the yellows underneath that. And then you identify these candidates, which can happen quickly, especially if it's sort of a quote unquote experiment. And you could say to your boss, this is the template. (laughs) The template, the whole point is to get people aligned. And so to do that, the best way is to walk through some version of this workshop, which we can shorten. You wouldn't take out steps, but you can shorten each step a bit. And usually it will leave people hungry for more. If that's not possible, the template I would give them which again is not a template, I would create a spreadsheet that has a column for I want, I need statements. And what I would tell the person is have your team or your organization or you write down all of the things you can think your, you think your users might say if you ask them to start their sentences with I want or I need with respect to their problem space or your product. And I don't care whether it's want or need. And that's what I say. I don't care. It's just whatever one feels easiest to you when you're writing these things down. And then I would sort of try to identify, is this the same person or is this a different person? If this I want, I need statement walked up to a concierge in the lobby of a multi-story building, and that's your product, would the concierge send this want and need to the same floor or a different floor as the one right before them? And all the ones that they'd send to the same floor in this analogy of your product as a building, those may be grouped into possibly a persona. And that's how I would suggest they do a quote-unquote template. I would say, start with just brainstorming all the want and need statements you possibly can. And then let me look at them with you and I'll show you how to put them in this template. But that's the core of it. Mm. That's really the core of it. And it, it can be a great, just getting people to think in terms of I want, I need statements or goal-related statements is a big light bulb moment for people. I love that. This idea of starting out with the boss, maybe even with your UX peers, right? As an experiment, trying it out. And that gets everybody on the same page and also contributing to what that approach is going to be with those stakeholders. And merciful heavens, do not try it big first. Oh my God. You at least have to run a couple of these. I also suggest that people find somebody else in your organization who's really interested and you run their workshop and they run your workshop. And you start small, just do it with your team, do it so that nobody ever even knows that you're doing it. And you'll be able to show the results and hopefully get a pull instead of trying to push. Mm -hmm. Get a little pull at least. A little pull or a willingness, a willingness to dedicate a few hours of everybody in the same room together. I mean, listen, the process is free. It's up to, I still have to edit it. It's kind of a a flipping mess, but I'm working on it. And the whole point of the website, alignmentpersonas.com is to let people talk about it and ask questions. So try the step-by-step process 
because it's been honed over a lot of years and it really keeps you from getting in too deep because each step is really easy. Awesome. Okay. Well, so we've gotten to the end of our time, but before I let you go, you mentioned the website alignmentpersonas.com. And if folks have questions about this or if they want to follow you, what are the ways people can follow you or find out if you're giving a talk in the near future or see your videos? What I'd love most is if people would go to alignmentpersonas.com and ask questions on the various pages of the steps. And things are going to be changing and moving around a lot because I'm still working on some of the content. But that's what I'd love. And in terms of talking, engage, speaking engagements and stuff, and I don't like traveling a lot anymore. So usually they're in Seattle. But I hope to, if people are interested, hold some office hours on the site or what have you. Well, thanks, Tamara, so much. I really, really enjoyed this. I was very curious about it. So thank you for walking us through this. And I think this is going to be really valuable for a lot of people. Oh, thanks so much. It was really fun to talk to you. So even if creating alignment personas may be a political process fraught with danger, I think we ended up with some great advice on how to navigate that. Starting small, starting from where you already have a good footing, whether that's with your product team or even your design and research team before you tackle the C-suite. And if you have any questions about it, you can hit up Tamara on her site. You can find links to resources on the show notes page at uxcake.co. And if you found this podcast interesting or useful, please take just a moment to rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a bite of UX Cake.